Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to compare and discuss the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office and those of our third-party asset manager partners. Joining us for the conversation to kick off 2023, glad to welcome back the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Excited to have back with us as well, Richard Bernstein of Richard Bernstein Advisors, or RBA. Rich is the firm's founder, as well as serves as the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer for RBA. So Rich, Jason, Happy New Year. Thank you for dropping by. How should I be positioned? Spending some time with our clients, our listeners, and sharing with them your expectations for markets throughout the course of 2023. Great to be back with you both. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks, Hank. It's great to be here. So to begin, as we were heading into the year that we're in now, 2023, Rich, I've heard that there's been a lot put out there alluding to the fact that it might be a challenging year for investors or at least a challenging first half. This, of course, following what was a tumultuous, challenging 2022. So, Rich, what's your thinking there? What factors or themes might drive markets in the year ahead? Yeah, so, so Dan, you know, 2022 was... Uh, challenging, and I think that's that's kind of understating it for a lot of investors. Um, you know, where we saw most of the most of the favorites, so to speak, uh, significantly underperform. And I think that right now, you know, we're we're kind of in a market environment where people are hoping that the old leadership comes back. And I think you know one of the one of the things that at RBA we've always kind of uh, championed is that volatility signals a change in leadership, right? The reason you get volatility in a market is because the overall economic environment begins to change. And the old leadership was geared to a certain economic environment. You get a changing of the guard, if you will. And that changing of the guard is volatility in that the old leadership uh, underperforms. They're no longer suited for the new economic environment. And some new leadership begins to emerge that's better suited to this new economic environment. And so what typically happens, unfortunately, is that people hold on to the, to the old leadership. They, they kind of hope that it will come back uh, to its previous form instead of understanding that there's opportunities elsewhere. And so I think 2023 could be a very challenging year again for those who are waiting for that old leadership to come back. But, but I think for people who are, are willing to accept that maybe the global economy is changing, I think there's going to be tremendous opportunities in a broad set of assets around the world. Jason, I know the Chief Investment Office has coined 2023 as being a year of inflection. So can you speak a bit to CIO's expectations for market performance over the next year and the factors that might drive it? You know, as, as Rich was saying about when you get volatility, you know, kind of turning points in the market, a different regime, you know, I think, you know, the thought of like those inflection points was kind of going through my mind. The way we think of it is that, you know, we've had an environment, if you go back last year, where inflation was still rising, central bank policy rates were still rising, growth was was okay, but slowing. What we expect this year, at some point, you'll get a clear inflection point inflation. And think we can probably say confidently that that actually happened in 2022. There is a question whether it's like another inflection point in terms of inflation going down. Maybe not though as much as the market and investors currently expecting kind of inflects to like an elevated sort of level where it sort of plateaus. 
the inflection point of when central banks you know stop hiking and, and potentially even cut rates, which is you know possible you know f- uh, you know by the end of this year. Though I think you know, you know we probably don't want to get ahead of ourselves in terms of what the Fed might do and when. And then in terms of you know the growth out, like when you could sort of see growth actually stop slowing and start to inflect better, which is we kind of look, you know look at where the data is and what's happened just in the past couple of weeks uh, with with China, you know with Europe, things maybe actually a little bit uh, inflected earlier than anticipated, whereas the U.S. By showing some resilience, you may actually inflect it later. So as long as we're in that environment, I think it's just it's that volatility will continue. So I think that's a you know kind of we're, we're sort of aligned with what you know Rich said in terms of a market of volatility. I think of kind of large market swings that, that oscillates between you know if we come out of it from the old regime into new regime, like what exactly does that new regime look like, and therefore what does you know how do I want to be positioned? I think what uh, you know I could say what's what. You know, seems some confidence is at least in the near term we're not going back to a macro environment that was very conducive to the winners of the past decade, at least not in the next you know year or two. Beyond that, I think that's more of a debatable point, uh, which means yeah, those people who I think are, are still expecting you know the winners from the past decade to suddenly kind of you know resurface. You may be you know, in for disappointment this year. So that's kind of overall how we're we're, we're thinking about um, you know that. But I kind of want to use that as a segue back to you, Rich. When you do talk about, you know, the, you know, a regime change or shifting markets, given sort of where we are right now, like how do you see, you know, the the macro landscape in terms of, you know, kind of growth, inflation, central bank policy, not just evolving this year, but like once the dust sort of settles on whatever the new environment is, what do you think that looks like, and how does it differ from where we were, say, in the pre-pandemic period? Yeah, I think Jason, the the key for us at RBA in terms of a longer term view of inflation really revolves um, less around Fed policy and central bank policy and a little bit more around it, will globalization continue to contract, right? If you think about the United States, I think everybody knows the United States is a massive trade deficit. And um, we could argue whether that's good or bad, um, but but what it really shows is that is that the United States producers of goods have been losing market share pretty consistently. And um, that's that was a function of globalization and the ability to – that globalization uh, was able to exert disinflationary pressures uh, on the U.S. Cons- uh, consumer market. So if you think about it, it was just – globalization, ever-expanding number of suppliers. When suppliers is greater than demand, you tend to get disinflationary forces, and that's what we exhibit. That's what we saw for, uh, uh, you know, more than a couple of decades um, if globalization, if globalization is starting to contract, that would argue that the number of suppliers will start to decrease. And on the margin, from our point of view, that would argue that instead of erring on the side of disinflation, which has been the correct thing to do for the past 20, 30 years, maybe now you want to start erring on the side of inflation. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the 1970s. You know, we can we can have we can add drama to this, of course, but I don't think that's realistic. I think it's just a matter of of understanding that maybe that secular force that was in the background is now going to start reversing, and it'll be it'll be a consistent challenge for central bankers. In other words, the trend in central banking may well be for the trend to be tighter monetary policy, maybe higher interest rates, as opposed to a long term trend. Of, of accommodating monetary policy and lowering interest rates. And I think that's, 
that you know globalization will be if not the key certainly one of the keys to that to that trend well on that point you know it, you can, we can allude to a number of different factors that led to you know, fall in inflation over a 40 year period from the early 1980s up until you know the pandemic period globalization was one you know, demographics with expanding labor forces certainly on, on a global perspective but even within the US for you know a couple of decades was another how important, though, like among these different factors, do you you know ascribe to globalization, and what kind of magnitudes are we talking about? So if I said, actually, you know what, we won't get stuff from China, but we'll just go from from Mexico, and frankly, that's the you know going to you know, cost differences isn't, isn't that large. So we can rely on you know nearshoring, friendshoring. I guess people sometimes use that term. So I'm just curious, like how much do you actually kind of weigh that factor, and what sort of magnitude are you thinking in terms of inflation from like two to two and a half percent, or actually something? more significant than that. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me answer the, the second part of your question first in that, you know, when we talk about higher secular inflation, all we're really talking about is maybe three percent or more. Right? I think most forecasts for long term secular inflation currently range between two and three percent. And that that kind of makes sense because the long term trend in inflation in the United States is about two and a half percent. So you find the surveys kind of kind of center around that two and a half percent. So, you know, we just kind of said, well, it's kind of an over-under bet, if you will. If, if consensus is between 2 and 3% secular inflation, one has to kind of make the bet, is it going to be higher than 3% or lower than 2%? And we just think it's going to be higher than 3%. Now, that's not, you know, that's not a wild statement relative to, you know, some people that are out there, but I think it, it could change your your, your portfolio and the emphasis within your portfolio. How, and now, your second, your other point, your primary point about, you know, will production just shift maybe from China to someplace else? I, I think as globalization contracts, yes, that's definitely going to happen. There's been talks about kind of commercial regions and things like that. And I, I, I think that's probably oxymoronic, probably likely to happen. Um, but but I think that that um, even within that context, there may be uh, some upward pressure on uh, inflation relative to what we're used to. Again, I don't want people to walk away from this thinking that what we're talking about is 1970s type inflation. Uh, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're simply talking higher inflation than people are used to perhaps 3% or more. So implicit in your kind of view that it, you'd err on the side of inflation being over 3% versus under 2% is that central banks will tolerate that. And so whether they certainly right now say like our job isn't done, we need to get inflation back to 2%, which they can say when inflation is still over 7 you know, when they're down to like 3.5% and they have to raise rates or, or risk a deeper recession, you know, you know, time will tell whether they, they're sticking to their guns or not. So do you think, I mean, ultimately, do you think and this matters even maybe for, for this year in terms of how far the Fed goes or when they might cut, that ultimately central banks, you know, will tacitly allow inflation to stay above 3%. At some point in time, they might even like revise instead of a 2% target, 3%. Like, how, how do you think then about the channel for, you know, kind of for what the Fed is willing to do? Oh, I think, I think everything you just mentioned, Jason, is, is likely to happen. I think the difference from an investment point of view is that central banks, and in particular the Fed, of course, um, kind of played the role of the hero riding in on the white horse to save the day, right? And and some people called that, um, uh, you know, the Fed put, so to speak. The Fed was always there with a safety net, ready, re- ready to, to save the day. I'm not quite sure that Fed put exists right now. So the way you see it, or, or the way I would kind of take an extreme case, 
is you might remember, Jason and Dan, that several years ago, people were complaining that the Fed was worried about issues like climate change. And, and people were going like, well, that's outside their, their normal, you know, purview. Why would they, why would they talk about this? And tongue in cheek here for a second. I don't mean this seriously, but tongue in cheek, they got a little bored. It was, it was pretty easy to be a central banker in a period of secular disinflation. And so to some extent, and again, I'm speaking in hyperbole and tongue-in-cheek, they, they, they kind of took their eye off the ball, and they were worried about issues because they were bored. And so they started talking about things like climate change. Well, today, you're not hearing the Fed say anything about climate change, right? They are – inflation is you know, still reasonably high, higher than what they'd want. Their focus is purely – on their dual mandate of unemployment and inflation. You're not hearing them talk anything about climate change anymore. Exactly. And, and so I think that we're going to find is that the Fed will err on the side of being tighter as opposed to err on the side of being looser, which they could do for 30 or 40 years without much concern. I think now we're going to find that central banking will, will have a different tone to it. It doesn't mean that they're going to be you know, overly restrictive and crush the global economy. Again, we can make this as dramatic as people might like, but what it, it what it really says is they're not their main concern is not going to be propping up uh, stock prices or coming to the rescue of investors who've lost money in cryptocurrencies or you know speculated in venture capital and it didn't work. The, the Fed could care less about that right now. This is a different era of I think we're beginning a different era of of central banking. I would agree certainly on you know like a central bank or Fed put being you know, off the table anytime soon. But the point about um, you know kind of climate change things like that sort of like maybe in true like three or four years ago they might have been like well we have nothing else to do so let's talk about that. But I will yeah. say that it um, this past weekend um, uh, was the American Economic Association meetings, uh, which is an academic oriented conference, uh, and I and I went to it because there's also a lot of panels and discussions about. Inflation about you know the macro outlook globally, um, and one of the things that I sort of took away from it is actually some comments by um, Catherine Mann, who uh, is on the the Bank of England Monetary Policy Setting Committee as an external member, and was talking about kind of climate, and you know, kind of made the point that in a world though where you can get, and this is probably more relevant for the UK and Europe, things like you know, cap and trade and pricing of carbon markets and how that creates volatility, especially as, you know, and this is very relevant on what's going on and when you think about natural gas prices and other energy prices in Europe how that influence central bank policy. So what began maybe four years ago out of a little bit of kind of boredom in a world where we could see these kind of extremes where energy supplies are disrupted, we go to the energy transition, this could in fact, you know, kind of shocks to the economy, impacts monetary policy. So it, it was sort of an interesting takeaway to me that, oh, I could see now, I can kind of draw the connection of how what's going on there can actually matter, matter right now in real time, for at least for the ECB and for the Bank of England. So I, I take your point, but I think it's, at least in some cases, there's, um, from a medium-term perspective, it actually has kind of more relevance than I would have estimated or thought to prior to kind of hearing those comments. Oh, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to in any way belittle the issue uh, underlying it in in any way, of course, but but I I just think you know it, central bankers will will have potentially you know their main mandate of price stability um, will be staring them straight in the face, and they may not have as much flexibility as they had in the past. But but your your points about climate change 
and I think are very well taken and very important. Uh, Just taking a temperature on the state of the U.S. economy as it stands today, Rich, and I know how one defines a recession that seems in recent time at least to have been called into question, but just given where we are now and perhaps expectations over the first half, what would you say are the prospects for a recession to occur here in the U.S.? And considering as well heading into the year, there were a lot of concerns, still are concerns about one occurring. Yeah, Dan, you know, when you when you talk about the U.S. economy and you talk about recession, I find my biggest surprise is that a lot of people believe we are already in a recession. And I, I don't think that's true at all, and I think that's part of the problem for the Fed and why some investors are, are still surprised at the, Fed's, at the Fed's tightness. We did have a couple of quarters of negative GDP, but, you know, a lot of that was because of of trade and, quite honestly, uh, inventory problems. You know, companies, again, speaking tongue-in-cheek here a little bit, we had too many Pelotons. And, and uh, you know, the, the economy was geared for a shutdown economy. Uh, the economy started opening up, and nobody wanted Pelotons anymore. And so, you know, it's more than Pelotons, obviously. I'm just using it as an example. But, but um, uh, and so you had kind of a disconnect in terms of GDP growth with what was really the activity that was going on in the domestic economy. So I, I think, you know, the, the recession is yet to come. And I think that, you know, Jason kind of alluded to this a little bit. I mean, profits growth in the United States is, is still decelerating. We're not in a formal profits recession yet. You're starting to see layoffs begin to pick up as profits begin to slow. That's perfectly normal. Um, but we, we're not in a profits recession. We're not seeing the full-blown, you know, wide-scale layoffs. And, in fact, what's interesting is the labor market and even some of the leading indicators of the labor market are remaining very healthy. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about the whole notion that the U.S. is already in a recession. I don't think that's true. I think one of the big stories, though, for 2023 is going to be the profits recession and how that leads to more weakness in the labor market and potentially weakness in consumption, which would then lead us into a very traditional economic recession. Jason, how is CIO thinking about the prospects for a recession? And would be curious as well to hear about how, from the point of view of CIO, how one might be defined. So first, um, you know, Rich mentioned like examples of sort of the excess for the past couple of years and mentioned Peloton bikes. We are in year's resolution season, so there might be an active secondary market in Peloton bikes right now. Um, It's a trading market that we should check out the prices of. They may have actually kind of recovered to some extent. Uh, In terms of the CIO view on a recession, I'd say we're, you know, effectively kind of calling for like a mild recession. Uh, You know, my head says, you know, that's probably the right call. My heart, you know, my kind of, I maybe want to believe that this time could be different, you know, that what we've had in the past two years is a pandemic economy or, or in some ways a kind of a wartime economy kind of dealing with this pandemic. And therefore, the standard rules of cycle analysis don't necessarily apply. The data is very noisy. And I think like last Friday um, or when we got the, the December payrolls report and you saw the dramatic revision down in the prior few months in terms of average yearly earnings really changed the directory 
you know, in, in, in one data release in terms of is wage growth, you know, still uncomfortably high, like at five and a half, six percent, or is it actually moderating closer to four percent? And you know, we went from the former to the latter, I think we just saw that data point. So I think that's why you saw the markets kind of respond somewhat positively that things are cooling, inflation is cooling. So I think there's, you know, if, if you want to make the case right now, we could go soft on and the data is still consistent with that. And if you want to say we went, we're going to go into recession with the indicators pointing to it, I think that's also valid. The way I think of it is, and maybe the right way to think about at least this recession is because there's so much focus on the labor market, talking about whether GDP will contract half a percent, two percent, maybe sort of beside the point. And even if we don't have a recession growing at half a percent, may not feel much different than contracting at half a percent. So I think a better way to think about it is like, does the unemployment rate you know, rise only to four percent? You know, which is maybe the soft landing to like four and a half or five, a mild recession or something that that's six plus to hard landing. I think, you know, the Fed itself is saying we're going to something like four and a half percent. So I think you're, you know, the Fed is without saying so is saying kind of mild recession. I would probably put more probability on that outcome. But I think conviction level, I think for, for any of us this year is, you know, you know, can't be that high in terms of the macro just because there's so many kind of wild cards and uncertainties. But and, and this is kind of going back to you, Rich, your point about profit recession I almost feel like I don't necessarily need to get the recession call right because across more scenarios, it's hard to see earnings, you know, increasing this year, if not decreasing, maybe decreasing quite a bit. Because if we do get a conventional recession, well, then you're going to get earnings declines of, you know, perhaps, you know, 10% plus. Even in a soft landing, they might contract 3 to, you know, 5%. And that's kind of our official view. Uh, if they, you know, in order to, Get inflation down. You need probably margins to come down, which is bad for earnings. And if none of that happens, and if inflation stays high, well, the Fed just keeps hiking, which then leads to recession. All of which is kind of why I think we're a little bit cautious on, at least on U.S. equities at the broad market level. But how do you think about like the profit side and how critical or how much does it hinge on those different sort of macro scenarios: soft landing, mild recession, you know, hard landing? Yeah, good question. I think you know for us. Um, we're always, as investors, we're always more concerned about profits than we are about GDP, right? I mean, equity markets are really geared to profits. And so for us, that's really the key. Right now, we're looking at, similar to what you said, kind of single-digit um, uh, minus signs for corporate profits in 2023. You know, that could be, I, you know, I don't want to add any kind of precision, but but let's say somewhere probably between minus 5 and minus 10%, somewhere in, in that in that ballpark. And the, and the question that's outstanding, and, and exactly to your point, Jason, is that there are so many question marks out there that if if profits go down five or ten percent, will that lead to uh, a broader weakness in the in the labor markets, and will that affect consumption, which would then potentially uh, end up in a recession, especially if the Fed continues to tighten? So our our view is right now that we we're pretty sure. The profits are going to decelerate, and so our portfolios are geared to that. Now, I think the from an investment point of view, again, you know, it's if profits go down five percent, if profits go down fifteen percent, um, it, it really wouldn't change our strategy that much. Except, I think our strategy, instead of to use the baseball analogy, you know, we might hit a single or a double or triple, but if we start going down more, then the triple becomes a, a home run or a grand slam. The strategy itself won't change. It, it could be the the percent uh, uh, performance that we get from it, or the accentuated performance, uh, if, if the environment got worse. Now, I don't want to. We're not forecasting, you know, a curl your toes recession by any means, um, but we think, you know, if that were to occur. We think our portfolios are, are reasonably well well positioned for that, given that we're already positioned 
for you know minus five to minus ten percent earnings uh, shortfall. But you said one other thing, which I think was was important, Jason and and Dan. You know, you may want to touch on this further. Um, was what's going on kind of outside and and non-U.S. equity markets. Uh, I think what one of the things that U.S. investors have become, which I don't understand at all, they become tremendously geographically myopic. They just refuse to look outside the United States. And, and you know, I, I, I throw the statistic out all the time now because people are, are so shocked by it. Seventy percent, seven zero, seventy percent of non-U.S. markets outperformed the United States in U.S. dollar terms during 2022. So there may be a message there that investors are missing, that there may be opportunities, you know, outside the 50 states. Uh, but but people, I found most investors just don't want to hear that. Yeah, it is a um, you know kind of you know hindsight bias when you look at the performance for really for a decade where the U.S. outperformed. What people don't realize though, it was you can almost attribute 80 percent, 90 percent of that outperformance to about a half dozen stocks. And if you remove it, the rest of the U.S. markets actually don't look a whole lot different than European equities. Uh, and so if the yeah. conditions that favored those half dozen stocks change, well, the opportunities kind of you know, lie elsewhere. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of in agreement that that's why we still have a you know, kind of preference for value stocks versus growth right now. And even among our regional preference, actually have U.S. as least preferred, just because those you know, those tech stocks that have underperformed, I think there's probably still kind of legs for that to happen. Whereas you mentioned kind of the global environment, we've seen, you know, obviously a much more rapid kind of drop in of COVID zero measures than anyone else was anticipating even six weeks ago. And, you know, mild weather in Europe that is sort of making their economic situation look better. So suddenly the ex-US global economy looks a little bit better on a relative basis versus the US. These words kind of trendy, which is also why I think there's, there are definitely these opportunities that, not only tactically, but from a kind of multi-year view, like if, if you're right about inflation staying closer to 3% over time and interest rates being higher, that is a, that's an environment where there should be kind of at least some catch-up, if not outperformance for, for markets outside of the U.S. But I think, you know, unfortunately, sometimes investors you know, will need a few years of, of data to prove that before they jump in. And right. they've already missed a lot of the, um, you know, the good performance to that point. In the few moments we have remaining, just sticking with opportunities, asset allocation, considering the policy, macroeconomic market outlooks you both have shared with us, Rich and Jason, I do want to get your thoughts on how should investors, our clients, be positioned at the moment in consideration of all of that. So maybe what we could do, Jason, will allow our guest, Richard Bernstein, the final word. I'll go to you, Jason, if there's anything you want to expand on in the way of final thoughts or takeaways with respect to allocation preference. Well, I've already kind of given some you know, insight into how we think about you know, equities from a regional perspective. We do, within U.S. equities, have a also like a defensive tilt in sectors. You know, this is a you know, going into a potential recession, even if it's mild. I think that still feels like it's kind of the, you know, the right strategy of how you want to be positioned given earnings prospects and given valuations. But I think the overarching question of like from a broad, you know, equity bond allocation, even though there is, you know, alternatives not equities, the, you know, the terror argument of there are real alternatives as opposed to no alternatives. I think a lot of investors will ask me, you know, do you want to be kind of reducing exposure tactically because the consensus that's widely discussed is that things will get worse before they get better. And I'd only just to be cautious on making any big allocation shifts because, well, the downside to equities, you know, it could be easy another 5 or 10%. 
there's also a lot of people who I think are still relatively constructive or believe like once we get these inflection points I alluded to earlier, once the Fed is done, then you start to kind of get a floor in terms of how far at least U.S. equities can fall. And people would then say, like, I can't time the bottom, therefore I want to put money to work. So there's a lot of any kind of resistance at levels not too far below where we are now. And unless you're really, really good at market timing, I think you know, you know, a better way to approach this is to say instead of trying to sell, then kind of get back in because if you sell now, you have to also have a strategy to say what exactly is going to be the conditions you need to want to buy back. And history tells us people are, tend to be very successful in that Alternatively, to think about, you know, there is value. There are opportunities out there, kind of globally. We've seen it, you know, just far this year. You know, XUS. If you have you know, kind of capital put to work, think about the plan for when markets pull back to actually be adding some of that exposure within equities. On the fixed income side, you know, with yields where they are, you can actually get income without taking a lot of risk. So, kind of up in quality is, is a call that we've had for a while. You know, buying higher quality corporate credit, um, you know, as opposed to lo- you know lower quality credit. Um, incrementally, we've been kind of adding duration to the portfolio. I think kind of a growing acceptance view also is that after a year where bonds, the treasuries did not give you any real diversification, you know, in your portfolio, that at current levels, as the market worries about growth, that they'd actually give you some kind of diversification versus equities. And I think, you know, we, we would agree with that view. So, uh, you know, kind of cautious in equities, but not, you know, super defensive, you know, given sort of the macro outlook. Again, a little more kind of, you know, kind of high quality in, in fixed income. Uh, and the one final thing I'd say is we still like and believe oil prices will go higher, like that part of the commodity complex, um, even though you know recently it's been kind of selling off because of concerns about the global environment, global growth, at least in the very near term. Thank you, Jason. Rich, final word to you if you want to share with our listeners your allocation preferences at this time. Sure. So, so um, Dan, I, I've kind of divided up. Uh, the you know the way I describe our our allocations into five to ten months and five to ten years, and in five to ten months I think Jason summarized it uh, really really well. You know we're pretty defensively positioned. Uh, we are over things like consumer staples, uh, healthcare, utilities. Very you know when when things get worse you want to look for necessities, um, and that's really where we are. Right? I mean economic principle. No matter what goes on, we all still eat. And that's really the driving force in our, our portfolio right now on the equity side. The fixed income side, uh, we too are focused on, on quality. Uh, you know, we mentioned uh, a profits recession. There has never been a profits recession where lower quality and junk-oriented bonds outperformed quality. It's, it's just never happened. And that's because corporate cash flows come under pressure during a profits recession, and the risk of, of default, the risk of bankruptcy goes up. Not that it happens, but the risk goes up, and so investors begin to shy towards quality. Uh, so, you know, we're very defensively oriented and, and focusing on quality and fixed income for the next five to ten months. Five to ten years, I think, you know, our view, as I started out with, is that the global economy is changing, and, and the leadership of the last five to ten years uh, is, seems unlikely to us to be the leadership of the next five to ten years. Uh, I think uh, the energy sector, whether you're looking at traditional energy or alternative energies, I think that's a very interesting sector going forward for, for both, you know, the old and the new. I think the industrial sector is, is very interesting as well. And, and the more one thinks or the more one agrees with us that, that, that globalization may be contracting, I, I think the more, um, uh, the more attractive these kind of sectors become. Uh, in terms of, of their potential growth prospects. So five to 10 years, five to 10 months, um, I think that's kind of the way to think about us. 
Well, Rich, Jason, thank you both for joining us here on How Should I Be Positioned to share with our listeners, our clients, your thinking on the markets, the policy environment, the macroeconomic environment as we kick off a new year. It was a great way to start 2023, hearing from you both and looking forward to keeping in touch as the year progresses, reconvening and having some follow-up conversations. So, Rich, Jason, thank you again for your time today. Appreciate it, as always. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks, Dan, and thanks, Rich, for joining us, and hopefully um, better times ahead in the markets this year. Absolutely. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.